This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Our last sponsor creates survival technology as well as camping and other outdoor gear. Outer Wild's ultimate goal is to provide clean technologies for everyday devices as they are driven to create a more sustainable world. Use the code IS, that's a capital I, capital S, on your next purchase and receive an additional 10% off. So go give their products a look. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. I am Dr. Patrick Maloney, and we are here with the Thinking Critically podcast. Our guest today is Bettina Schneider. She's been with us before to discuss the ongoing COVID efforts uh, in the United States. And Bettina is a, has a master's of public health uh, from New York University. She's worked all around the world on projects all around the world um, in Lebanon. Uh, she was on the ground in China when COVID broke out. And she is now in South Africa, uh, working as a global epidemiology fellow with the Centers for Disease Control. Um, so, Bettina, oh, forgot to mention, she is also a TikTok celebrity showing that she's doing epi videos, has about 135,000 followers I saw today, and just showing the world that it's not just us nerds that are interested in epi-related stuff, uh, especially in uh, the midst of the pandemic that is continuing to go on in the United States. So uh, let's let's start out with some stats, just sort of give uh, give an impression of you know how things are going in the United States and around the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the daily weather report, but for COVID and much higher stakes weather report. Uh, so. Currently, there are over 470,000 deaths in the United States, and there have been over 2.3 million deaths globally. Now, in the United States, on our current trajectory, we're expected to eclipse 500,000 deaths by the end of February, and that's just absolutely devastating. I mean, if you look at it on a population basis, there's been one in every 700 Americans that have been that have died as a result of COVID. And those are just the ones that we know about. Um, and that's, 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 inc that's insane to think about. That's, that's like 0.14% of the population or somewhere around there. Uh, if I were a betting person and I was betting on my life, I would not like those odds. Um, but there have also been 27.4 uh, million cases in the United States and we have eclipsed 100 million cases globally. Again, those are just the ones we know about. Testing isn't widely available in many places around the world, and we're still having difficulties getting everybody tested in the United States. Uh, so that number is likely much, much higher. So I would say we've, there's probably not been one person in the United States who hasn't been affected by the pandemic in one way or another at this point. Uh, somebody who's known somebody who's passed away or somebody who's been infected or somebody who's had been hospitalized uh, it's affecting our everyday lives. We are in lockdown. 
But there is some good news, right? In December, we got the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, both approved for use in the United States. AstraZeneca is approved in the EU and uh, the UK. And now we have the J&J vaccine that is coming up for approval in, with the FDA in the United States. With all of that, I, I'm sort of optimistic. I'm excited about that. But then we also have the emergence of new variants, the B117 variant coming out of the UK, the P1 variant coming out of Brazil, and then the B1351, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, 351 out of South Africa. And we're going to talk about the emergence of those new variants, what it means for the infectivity and the severity of disease, and also are they impacting the vaccines? But uh, first, how about we talk about the vaccines? Let's talk about, in general, are the vaccines safe and effective? Your, your opinions, Bettina. Ooh. I, Ooh. I <laughs> so far, I have seen nothing to be concerned about. Um, one of my largest things I like to just get out there. Um, but just talking about these mRNA vaccines, whether it is Pfizer or Moderna, it's absolutely incredible the efficacy we're seeing coming out of this and now the effective data that we're seeing coming out of this. 94, 95% efficacy, is be it's beautiful. Um, and some of these other uh, vaccines coming down the pipeline, whether it's AstraZeneca or J&J, &J, they're still having pretty high efficacy rates. So whether they're safe, totally. But the more, more important thing is here, efficacy, so. Yeah. I, well, I would say safety and efficacy are, are both important, but yes, it is, it is, uh, it is, uh, it, 94 to 95% is a incredible feat for any vaccine to reach in terms of efficacy. So for those of you who don't know, efficacy is the, is the ability for a vaccine to prevent illness in a clinical setting. And then effectiveness is the ability for the vaccine to prevent disease outside of a clinical setting. So outside of a clinical setting, there's a ton of things that can influencing, they can be influencing vaccine administration, a limitation of doses, people aren't getting vaccinated on schedule, um, all of those sorts of things. Um, but the, so let's talk about Pfizer and Moderna being mRNA vaccines and what that means and what kind of technology that that, that, that actually is. So we have about three decades of research leading up to these mRNA vaccines and about 10 days, I mean, 10, 10, 10 years of research of mRNA vaccines being used in cancer. Um, so this was not just an overnight plea to science. This was built on decades of research. And mRNA itself is messages, just little messages. For those that might need a comparison, I like to compare it to Snapchat. So quickly <laughs> arrive and expire just like a Snapchat would. And for both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, these messages are only talking about one protein on SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 is made up of 25 proteins, so it's nothing like the messaging of the entire virus. But the messaging for this one protein is just the binding domain to the spike, spike protein, where that spike protein likes to latch onto our own cells. So it's, it's kind of the beauty of science in a sense too. Yeah, absolutely. Very simple. It, it's, it's very simple, but it's very beautiful. So. And can you get 
can you get COVID from the mRNA vaccines? Absolutely, absolutely not. Um, like I said, there's 25 proteins that make up the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So missing those other 24 point something something, it, it, there's, there's no chance of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's the difference between the mRNA vaccines then and the, the J&J and the, um, the AstraZeneca vaccines? So with AstraZeneca, this is a live attenuated virus, which is a virus that is mutated down to the point that it's essentially harmless. The, the virus actually isn't even SARS-CoV-2, but contains the messaging for the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. Um, live attenuated viruses have been used in many of the vaccines that we get today. Um, so they are a trusted true and true source of how we do our vaccines. Um, but at, at the same time, we are seeing a little bit less effective uh, efficacy out of these live attenuated vaccines currently. They're hitting yeah. around 65 to 85%. So. Yeah, so I was reading that uh, AstraZeneca is about is about 70% um, effective at preventing illness. And a new press release that they just released actually said it's 100% effective at preventing severe illness. So I mean, that, that's, that's very important to make the distinction between, between those two. Because if and, we can prevent... Yeah, if we can... The mRNAs as well, so 100% against, against the severe illness. Yeah, which is, which is, I mean, uh, incredible, because that, that's really the name of the game. Obviously, <clears throat> we'd love to be able to prevent all illness, but if we can prevent severe illness, that prevents people from going to the hospital, it prevents people from getting really sick, it prevents people from dying. So that, that's ultimately really our goal. Uh, with the J&J &J vaccine, I think it's only two-thirds effective at, um, so it's only at about like 65% at preventing illness and 85% at severe illness. but. <clears throat> The J&J &J vaccine was administered in South Africa, and that's part of their clinical trial. So that could be pulling that, those efficacy numbers down. And um, maybe we can explain why, why that is, why it's so important that it's being administered in, uh, in South Africa. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's an important time to, to see that one for sure. But with this B135, one <laughs> variant. Um, there's 10 mutations to the spike protein itself. Um, so the, it's not only we're seeing decrease in convalescent serum antibodies, we're seeing more transmissibility um, and uh, faster progression of disease. Um, so far, less serious outcomes of disease. Um, but in terms of J&J, &J, it's, it's definitely an isolated event of a singular population having a different variant. Whereas, you know, in the States, we're, we're using variants that we were seeing early on in the pandemic in those vaccine trials. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, so just a little but, bit more. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's like, I would like to talk about that a little bit more. So in the States, Pfizer and Moderna just came out uh, testing against both the B117 variant coming out of um, Britain and the South African variant neutralization. Oh, Patrick, I lost you. Oh, did you? Okay, I, we're back. I okay. Okay, awesome, we're back. Um, but it, both vaccines are, are above um, 
the protective titers needed, um, which is really great. And then Moderna is currently creating a booster vaccine to the South African variant itself. Um, in more pressing news though, what we're seeing come out of the UK is a mutation called E484K to the B117 variant. Um, and it's giving, you know, just another challenge to both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. Cambridge currently uh, just came out with a press release either yesterday or the day before saying that they, there was a tenfold reduction in neutralization, neutralizing antibodies um, for the Pfizer vaccine against this new mutation to the variant. So just another challenge on the horizon, but, um, Luckily, it's still with that as well, was above the protective level we need. Um, so, okay, so great. Um, so just, just to, to run it down real quick for everybody, there have been, a variant, there have been variants to COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 virus throughout the world. And these variants occur when there are subtle mutations in the, in the virus and in these, in these in these variants, it's to the to the spike protein, and um, these these variants now um, are are subtly different than than SARS-CoV-2, the initial virus that we had, and these variants being different are in some cases more transmiss more transmissible. We've been seeing that they've been between about fifty to seventy percent more transmissible than the initial virus, so it's spreading more quickly, and then. The variants, like you were saying, Bettina, are subtly different to the point where the antibodies that are created by the mRNA vaccines in Moderna and Pfizer, and we're not so sure with AstraZeneca and J&J yet, but we, the, the, those vaccines are less effective against the new South Africa variant. And I think it was like a six-fold de decrease in neutralizing yeah. antibodies. Uh, in the South Africa variant, and now another Moderna. So wow, that's incredible. So so what what does that mean from a from a you know just epidemiological perspective? Um, what 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 should what should the messaging be to people? How uh, how are we going to have to adapt our vaccine delivery system? Should people still be getting the vaccine? Is it, is it worth it at, at that point? So maybe we should start with the basics 101 here because RNA viruses and what their true nature is, is they're constantly mutating, right? So we're actually seeing new variants pop up every single week. We have been set for the past 13 months of this, <laughs> this pandemic, but whether or not those variants actually go on to survive and like create community transmission, that's a different story. And that's why we're so concerned about these three variants in particular, Brazil, UK, and South Africa, is because they have adapted to not only know our bodies better, but become, become more transmissible and stay around, um, kind of a selection, selection pressure there but trusting that the science is still developing, it's not a great answer, right? Because the science that we've been seeing has been developing for the past 13 months. It's still in a sense new, but at the same time, we're learning new things every single day. Um, from a, another epidemiological standpoint, any protection that we can get from this virus is meaningful. It doesn't matter whether or not we have a reduction in neutralizing antibodies. 
any protection we can get at this point is meaningful because it's stopping this virus from going from person to person and mutating, even if it's on an individual level. And you never know by chance that if somebody were to get this vaccine and they were hesitant, they could have been the person to stop the next mutation that was very, very severe. So what are, what are the implications of reduction in neutralizing antibodies um, from, from a vaccination standpoint? Ooh, good question. So in most cases, <laughs> wait, oh, let me think about this from a science standpoint. Oh, Patrick, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> okay, let me think about how to phrase this well. Um, it's uh, any reduction in neutralizing antibodies is comparative to the original trials that were done with the variants used in those trials. Um, so when looking at the SARS-CoV-2 virus used in the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine trials, that's the comparative baseline to what we know is a reduction in antibody, antibodies produced against these new variants. So from a, from a practical standpoint though, um, so a reduction in antibodies, does that mean that the vaccines are gonna be less effective? Does that mean that we're gonna to need to get boosters? Does that mean that- We're gonna see efficacy levels go down. We're probably gonna see the need for boosters. We might in the future even see the need for annual vaccines like the flu, um, even though I still try to remain hopeful that some of these vaccines that are intended to be two-dose series can remain two-dose series, maybe with the exception of a booster, but I'm, I'm trying to re remain hopeful in that arena. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's going to be it's going to be really, really difficult to control the emergence of new variants, um, which ultimately may become you know new strains of the virus if they become the dominant species and prove to be more infective and more severe, which I think that we're we're seeing right now. Um, it's, it's gonna to be tough to control the emergence of those new variants if our vaccine rollout continues to be so slow, right? Because the, the more people that become infected, the more opportunities there is for the virus to mutate, right? Exactly, exactly. Picking back off that any person that can get vac vaccinated, it is meaningful. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it seems, it seems to be difficult in, so the United States traditionally, at least over the past couple of decades, has developed this hesitancy to get vaccinated. And there have been, a, there's been a lot of misinformation that's been spread over the past few decades surrounding like the MMR vaccine, for example, the, the Tdap vaccine. Uh, there's been the allegation that, you know, vaccines cause autism, even though there's zero evidence to suggest that that's the case. But I think that we're seeing that bear out in the United States. I mean, you even have healthcare workers. I read that something like 40% of frontline workers in Los Angeles turned down the vaccine. I read in a, I think it was Ohio. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but 60% of nursing home staff turned down the vaccine. And then there's a study by Kaiser that came out that showed that 27% of Americans were were hesitant and unsure if they were actually going to get the vaccine. So one, what damage does that do here in the United States? And two, what messaging do you think that we need to, to get out to the public and 
to, to healthcare workers even who are who are reticent to, to get this vaccine? Well, the damage is what we're seeing right now. The US is going on one fourth of the global mortality data. It's going to continue to stay that way if we can't get vaccines equitably rolled out. Um, but I do like to say two things about the safety of vaccines. I have two little stories. So the first is when people like to say, this was rushed, we, this has only been done in this past year. Yes, in a sense, out of urgency, but there wasn't corners cut. There was, for the first time in scientific history, enough resources and people to be able to measure the data as these trials were occurring rather than just as an afterthought or years afterwards. And then compare it to what's the fastest vaccine that's ever been developed before this? And that's the mumps vaccine. It took four years. It had a team of 10 to 15 people and only the funding from one pharmaceutical company in the 1960s that happened to be a little under $100,000 not the billions of in funding we have today, not the thousands of scientists working collaboratively. So it's like, what are we comparing this vaccine to as a timeline? Should we be comparing timelines? Absolutely not, because we have this like amazing pot of resources to do this properly. Yeah, it's been, it's been truly an unprecedented feat in science. Um, if we think about it, the United States had its first case just a little over a year ago. And the SARS-CoV-2 virus was first identified in, in China about 13 months ago. And yeah. in under 12 months, we had two highly efficacious, highly safe vaccines that were that were produced and ready for ready for distribution, um, which is which is truly and, and even more beautiful. I'd like to give this time a shout out to Dr. Kizmika Corbett, Dr. Kizzy Corbett, the immunologist leading the Moderna vaccine. Um, a black woman who is a Tar Heel, not a Duke's fan, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it's amazing to see there's some sort of poetic justice there. I think a little bit too that a black woman is saving America in our time of need. So it's, I think it's very compelling that you bring that up because we know the data is bore out that, that COVID is disproportionately affecting persons of color um, and people of lower socioeconomic statuses. And now in the distribution of the vaccine, we're seeing it's racially inequitable. If you're white, you're far more likely to get a vaccine than you are if you are black or if you are Hispanic. And I mean, why do we why do we think that 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 is like particularly with the with the in terms of distributing the vaccine? Like, wh why is there still this this racial disparity that's existing? So largely systemic issues, and the the other part more more a little bit more valid is hesitancy to uptake. Um, mm the communities that have been traditionally abused in Western medicine. Um, these are also communities that have kind of been left out of the loop of what is currently happening and from left out of the loop of transparency. So, well, there, I like to be, you know, totally clear here that a lot of these vaccines have released all of their data to be totally transparent. But whether or not that data is being disseminated to communities in a digestible manner for the general public, that's another debate. 
and it's kind of being left in a little bit of a void right now. So. Yeah, it's it's really troubling that it's really troubling because I I've read reports that you know vaccination centers are being set up in majority white neighborhoods, like and they're you know they're being they're being you know targeted at these at these more affluent areas and there hasn't been a ton of messaging geared directly towards minority populations because like you said i mean going back the you know the past 100 years of american history or like even before that but if we're talking about medical medical history like you it goes all the way back to like the tuskegee experiments when you know uh, when black folks were experimented on and it's expended all the way through through now and i know that i know that there is a great hesitancy to receive those vaccines because of the fear of of being of being experimented on and it's just discouraging that we haven't seen any messaging that's that's been geared towards that's been geared towards minority populations but even populations in in general so i mean maybe this is a, a good time to talk about the vaccine rollout the logistics of the rollout in in the United States and perhaps the Trump administration's approach versus what we foresee the Biden administration's approach uh, to be. Right, right. So it's one thing that was telling to me within the past two weeks was when Dr. Rachel Walensky, the new director of the Centers for Disease Control, her first- Our new boss. Our new boss (laughs) had to make the statement that she had absolutely no idea where the vaccines were and how, if so, how many are in reserve in the United States. That was something very telling to me that we're starting from scratch here, basically. basically. Yeah. Was, who was it? Was it Alex Azar, our, our health secretary who said, who, who said that we had reserve doses to give out a second, you know, second doses to people, but they, they didn't exist. Like they, they were just, they were just gone. Like they didn't exist. That's, that's just incredible to me. I mean, so if we look at, if we look at the the stats, right? So in December, the United States government, the Trump administration said that they were going to roll out 20 million doses and 20 million doses were going to be administered by the end of January. As of midway through January, only 9 million doses were actually administered. Just an unmitigated, an unmitigated disaster. And under the Trump administration, vaccine administration, vaccine planning was all left to to the states. So put in the state's hands who are already overburdened, overtaxed, and on top of that, on top of dealing with community spread of COVID, clinical spread of COVID, hospitalizations, death, in terms of dealing with the response, lockdowns, mask mandates, all the other things that health departments in the states have to deal with and local governments have to deal with, now they have to roll out the most significant public health tool in in modern history. And they are doing so without resources, without funding, and without the logistical and technical expertise. So is is it really all that surprising that vaccine rollout sort of fell flat on its face with, uh, when we started, um, when we started the, the vaccine rollout? Oh man, we're, we're, we're starting, we're starting somewhere. We have, we have to start somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I will say though, to date, um, to date, there have been 36 million doses that have been administered. So from that, 
middle of January until beginning of February, we have ramped up the administration of doses basically three times, like three times what the initial administration was. Um, for, for our listeners, we have to remind you that even though we have two doses per person, so we hear 36 million doses and we have to divide that by two. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. So the number of people that have received one dose at this point is 28.9 million. And the number of people who have received two doses is at 7.5 million. So um, yes, so that's, uh, that's sort of a huge distinction to make because you're not gonna enjoy the full, the full efficacy of the vaccine until you had two doses administered. So in addition to like the political and logistical issues, there's also an issue with the way that at least the Pfizer vaccine is, is produced, right? That makes it difficult to administer to populations. So what's the difference there between Pfizer and Moderna? So let's talk about the Pfizer vaccines really quick because this might give you an answer. So we have mRNA, of course, and then we have lipids, very similar, if not identical to the fatty bilayer lipids in our own cells that are going to deliver the, these little messages um, to our cells. And then we have four different types of salts. One of them is a table salt. And then lastly, we have sugar to help keep this vaccine in these ultra cold temperatures that it needs to be preserved at. So the temperatures that uh, Pfizer needs to be preserved at is a lot colder than the Moderna vaccine, which is creating cold chain issues that we're seeing now. Um, this is why we're hearing anecdotal stories of people walking outside of pharmacies and having pharmacists wave around vaccines because they took them out of the cooler and they don't want them to go bad because people didn't show up to their appointments. So that that is one severe issue we're seeing right now is cold chain issues even in the states. So when we yeah. and that so that makes it difficult to distribute in the state. So Pfizer has to be stored at like something like negative degree negative 40 degrees Celsius or something along those lines. Right. It's something incredible. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be thought out beforehand before it's actually administered. But at the time that it's thought out, you have limited amount of time between the time it's that it's thought. Yeah, between the time it's thought and between the time it's administered. So that makes Pfizer very difficult in terms of like mass vaccination campaigns. So talking about global candidates, like what we're going to be administering in like resource poor settings among you know people in uh, people in poorer countries, uh, maybe in rural areas. The Pfizer vaccine is just not going to not going to cut it, right? So, how do we? How are we going to do it? Which, by the way, let me interject here is is ironically misfortunate because one of the vaccines with the highest efficacy is not going to be able to be delivered to some of the more more burdened and socioeconomically economically um, undersaturated countries. So, yes, yes, which is which is a truly unfortunate fact, especially when you take into account the fact that AstraZeneca, which was going to, I, I mean, didn't have the same cold chain issues, um, was very cheap to produce, extremely cheap to produce, initially reported that they had 90% efficacy, but then we find out that that 90% efficacy is basically basically based on an error. Like they, gave, they mistakenly gave a half a dose to, to somebody in the first dose and then 
you know, a full dose and the second dose. And they were like, wow, this, you know, this actually looks pretty good. So they conducted a sub-study with only 2,800 people, nobody over the age of 65. And then they reported out those results. So did that do damage to one, the faith in, in vaccines um, and two, to the, to the potential to administrate it, distribute it far and wide throughout the world? I, I think to, to some extent, the general public definitely has questions when they, when they hear, oh, these vaccines are doing great. This one's doing great. Oh, wait, hold up a second. What's going on here? So uh, unfortunately, every single one of these disclaimers that scientists have to make, because once again, scientists are ethical people, um, it, <laughs> it, it unfortunately does decrease trust little by little. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, too, this is even more reason for information to be broken down in a more digestible manner, because that's all we can do. So, yeah, the problem for me is I as a scientist, I felt deliberately misled by the AstraZeneca results. So the fact that they reported those out as efficacy numbers, but the but the way the results that they made their conclusions on were very dubious that i mean that to me that that was sort of like a pretty egregious error in terms of in terms of you know reporting your vaccine results and i just i just imagine that epi, twi epi twitter shares your sentiments patrick <laughs> in arms <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I know, and it's just it's just so unfortunate, especially because, like we were saying, the AstraZeneca vaccine is probably the best candidate to to get out and distribute far and wide. Because Moderna's vaccine, fantastic, two doses, and it's the same in terms of dosage and storage as the AstraZeneca vaccine is, but it's much more expensive. So the AstraZeneca vaccine was super cheap. They were committing doses around the world to you know more resource poor countries. And uh, then they ran into to all these issues. And now it's like you look at the distribution plans in some parts of the world aren't expected to get vaccinated until 2023, 2024. And yeah. with potential delays, who knows when that's going to be? And that's a scary fact, given that we've got all these new variants that, that are emerging. I mean, if we don't stop this, if we don't build up some sort of immunity, we're going to be in a in a pretty dubious position. <laughs> exactly, um, it, it's it's almost like a horror film. You think thinking about these variants in my mind a little bit, but circling back to any protection we can get, uh, I'll take it. I will take it. So absolutely. So okay, I wanted to talk about this next. Um, so what does it mean when we say that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine? protects against symptomatic infection? And what are the impacts of that in terms of us wearing masks after we vaccinate, socially distancing, still remaining in our homes, avoiding poor, uh, poorly ventilated spaces? So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Like if we get vaccinated, do we still need to take public health precautions? Oh, absolutely. We need to take everything in our arsenal, full force at this point. Um, I, I I think people are, I think not just the public health community, but people in general are getting burnt out with this pandemic. They, they are getting a little bit towards a lazy behavioral change, 
side of things. They were feeling a little bit more lackadaisical. They're feeling a little bit more lax. Um, but in reality, just because somebody gets vaccinated doesn't mean they can stop wearing a mask or stop social distancing or stop ch changing how they've been living for the past few months. So. Yeah, because I mean, the fact of the matter is we just, we know that the vaccines present symptomatic infection, but we don't know if they prevent asymptomatic infection. So it could be possible that you could be vaccinated, but still contract the virus, still replicate the virus, still be able to transmit the virus, but not experience any symptoms or ill effects yourself. And the last thing that we wanna do is go around, think we're safe. And I mean, at that point, it's, it's even worse than if you're a regular asymptomatic spreader because you think that you've got this protection around you, right? And you think that you can go out and you think you can interact with people with no consequences, but then you can become a, an isolated super spreader because you, you don't know that you need to take you know, proper, proper um, precautions. Um, and so, that's, that's for sure. The, the messaging needs to be ramped up of using everything in our arsenal right now. Speaking of which, mass production, have you seen anything on this? whether or not the Defense Production Act will be put into use to help produce N95s and KN95s for the public. I, I don't know. Is it going to be yeah. put into use? There, there are some rumblings going on, um, which, which is great because there was research that just came out of Harvard this past week that said if everybody wore a KN95, we could stop transmission at a halt in four weeks. So... so What's the difference between a N95, KN95, surgical mask and cloth mask? Like what, we've got a continuum of masks that are available. Well, surgical mask and cloth mask probably available to the public, still difficult to find a K95 or N95 mask. So what, what's the difference between, between those masks? So looking at these 95s, it's blocking 95% of the particles coming in through the mask itself. Whereas surgical masks, it's a bit of a decrease. I think it goes down to 40 or 50% and cloth even lower, unfortunately. But in reality, each one of these face coverings is still blocking particles from being transmitted outwards. So that still at the end of the day, any, <laughs> any transmission that we can block, great, even if the protect protective layer isn't necessarily the best. But with these, these KN95s and N95s, it would it'd just be absolutely amazing if we could get roll up to every single person in America. Um, and they're, they're looking at actually distributing through the USPS. So to yeah. every household, which would be, unfortunately, we're 13 months in, and this is something that's happening or being talked about now, but hopefully it's something that actually comes to, comes to life. I had seen that. I had seen that we were talking about or the Biden administration was talking about distributing masks, you know, on a, I think it was like on a weekly basis or something like that to, to people directly to their homes. And so my question is then, is the problem now, is that going to, so is that going to solve anything? Because the problem now isn't that we don't have access to at least surgical masks, right? The problem is that there's just been a widespread misinformation campaign by a certain political portion of the population that's, that's really been leading this like war on science and on public health. And um, so if we just provide masks to people, is that going to change anything? Like what, what's the impact going to be there? 
Right. So it, it's reflective of people who weren't, haven't been wearing masks for the past 13 months in the first place, but mm -hmm. also just if these masks are delivered, like really getting the messaging out there that these need to be worn in high risk areas. I mean, the messaging is already occurring that to double mask in the States, we need to stop community transmission and stronghold of these new variants. Uh, it's the unfortunate reality that if they become widespread in the same numbers that we're seeing in the UK, 50% of the new infections in the UK being this B117, if that were the same case in the United States, it, it's, it would be even more horrific than what we're already seeing which is saying something. Um, but going back to whether or not we deliver masks and people actually decide to use them, it, it's a different story. We've had 13 months to get everybody on board to the, at this point. Is everybody on board? No, and there needs to be some healing there. And I not necessarily have the solutions to this, but I, I think we were talking about this last time, Patrick, whether or not it's gonna get so bad that people kind of get on board they're going to start losing loved ones and it's going to start affecting their life immediately so yeah <clears throat> unfortunately i just don't even know i don't even know that, that we've gotten to that point i don't even know what the threshold is for it getting too bad i mean it seems like people <laughs> I, even... I was seeing the other day everybody likes to in a in a certain um Kruki uh, group like to flaunt the 99.7% or 99.5%, whatever percent they like to flaunt as a survival rate, which is always the upward bounds of survival rate in children, ever just the whole group, group, group of humans in the States as a whole. Um, but someone mentioned, what would the number have to be for people to take this seriously? What, what number would it have to be? I don't even know. And the fact that certain so survival survival rate is is great like when you're like oh you know you know it's it's 99 and a half percent or whatever it is but then you see one in 700 people have died in the united states and you're like oh wow does you know i mean is survival rate like really you know that big of a deal and furthermore this virus causes severe long-term neurological effects in a number of people who become infected if you get long COVID, you experience the symptoms for months and months after you, you know, and if supposedly it's your other post-viral syndromes, it's going to last years, if yeah. not people's lifetimes. So and, we're talking about millions of people becoming disabled because and, of this. And we've only had 12 months of, of follow-up time. I mean, if you, if you want to extrapolate that, we don't have any idea what the long-term effects of, of this virus are, are going to be. Just because it's 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 new, like that's that's why we call it the novel coronavirus. And even the variants that were significant before, like uh, SARS-CoV-1 and uh, MERS, um, those those epidemics were were brought to a halt relatively quickly. Didn't have a ton of cases, and we just never got much time to research that. So it's just we we just don't know what the effects are going to be. So to flaunt the fact that, you know, oh, we might have a survival rate of 99 and a half percent just does not, it's just so reductionist that it it's it's crazy. I mean it's just you're cherry picking information that suits your narrative. Like you're coming in with these cognitive biases like I'm right. And I'm going to find the things that make me right instead of going in and being like, 
well, let me take all of the information and digest it and then, you know, come to a conclusion. And that's, that's really harmful. Yeah, especially when you've, very, you've, very harmful. Especially when you've had messaging from the top that is, you know, you know, backing all of this up. I mean, it just, I, I wonder how differently it would have been had we had a different administration in place rather than probably the most anti-science, anti-fact, pro-misinformation administration that, that, we've, that we've ever had. Yeah. And you know, we can see a little bit of the answer in other countries that use our pandemic contingency protocols. South Korea used the CDC's protocols almost to a T, which is and, insane with New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. And all of those countries in Southeast Asia and then, you know, Australia and uh, New Zealand and the Asia Pacific region, they're back to normal. Like they, they are, you know, going around, going about their day and just, just living, you know, everyday normal lives. And then we're here in the United States where we've had this haphazard response that's been, that's been put together and has done nothing to really you know, slow the, split, the spread of the virus. But in, in South Africa, what is, what is the situation now? So you've recently relocated to, to South Africa and you were telling me before we started recording that South Africa, who has been in lockdown is finally starting to lift some of those, of those restrictions. So directly after uh, Christmas, South Africa went into a level three lockdown, essentially banning all alcohol, banning cigarettes even, um, and having a pretty strict curfew from uh, 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. Uh, this past week, it's been lifted a little bit, but we're still technically in a level three lockdown. Um, the curfew has been widened from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. Alcohol ban has been lifted. Thank um, God for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, but like at the same time too, we were seeing very, very interesting anecdotes from ERs saying that they had absolutely no alcohol related incidents occurring, no alcohol related withdrawals coming in. Um, so those beds were free for COVID-19 patients, which is really, really crucial. So was that a fear when they implemented the no alcohol policy that people were not going to have access to alcohol, go through withdrawals and then clog up the, the ERs? Was that, a, was that a fear? going? And interestingly lockdown? to the United States where that is a fear, it wasn't a fear here. Um, there, there's a sub, couple subtle reasons for that, largely because a lot of the population get paid on a monthly basis. So they, they have kind of go th those who are alcoholics go through a binging process as is. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, apples to apple trucks here. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's been for people who are tuning in where, where South Africa is, they're hearing about this virus. But uh, variant here, but only forty thousand people have died here. So is that? So it, do you think that that's accurate? And do you think that if we looked at you know excess death information, for example, right. do you think right. that do you think that that number would be higher? I mean, South Africa is you know one of the wealthiest countries in 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 Africa, but there are still areas where there is is not access to healthcare, where people have to go, you know, very far to to um, to access um, 
to access hospitals and, and medical care. I would be I would be willing to bet that it's almost just as reflective as the states. Um, there is still very high excess mortality in the states as well. Um, but if you're actually looking at the comorbidities of the populations here in South Africa, diabetes and hypertension are not as high as they are in the states. And we know with this virus that it knew, it learned how to flourish in people with diabetes and with hypertension. Um, so we're not seeing severe outcomes of disease, aka death, as much here in places that have don't have those comorbidities. Yeah, that's interesting to me because I never really thought about that because the United States is, you know, notoriously one of the least healthy countries in, uh, in the world. So I, I had never really thought about that being a contributor to, to our significant, you know, number of fatalities, but it makes sense because those people are, you know, at risk for severe COVID related illness and death. So yeah, but I had never thought about it on like a population standpoint. So when you went to South Africa, what was the process? Cause I mean, most of us, most of us aren't traveling now. Um, yeah. So did you need to get special clearance to travel? What was oh, the quarantine yeah. like when you got into South Africa? I was really lucky because I got here the first week of January. So before majority of airlines had stopped actually coming to South Africa, um, I had taken three different PCR tests before, within 72 hours of my plane simply because wow. uh, I was living in New York prior to this and I didn't know whether or not I would have a PCR turnaround test in that amount of within time. Within three in days. Yeah. yeah, in New York, results are taking about four to five days. <laughs> um, and then on top of it, you need it within 72 hours of arriving in country. Mm -hmm. And of course, I had 24 hours of travel time. Yeah. So that narrowed the window to even smaller. I remember like the few days before leaving, I was running around all of New York, waiting in lines, summer lines for six to eight hours at a time, just waiting to get a PCR test to the next one where I'd have to try to get another one. Um, hoping, hoping that one result would come back. And actually out of my three, only one came back right before my, before my plane. So I wow. almost didn't get on. That's lucky. Yeah. Uh, but I flew Qatar Airlines, which for anybody that isn't aware, Qatar Airlines is rated one of the best airlines in the world. It is, mm -hmm. I can't stop raving about it on a personal note, but my plane only had 27 people on it. That's nice. Which was, yeah, on a plane that holds almost 300 people, it was really, really something. Um, and then you kind of talk about the safety of planes too right now, like planes that size, the, the air actually circulates within two minutes. Um, so that's, that, that felt a little bit more comforting getting here. But um, upon entry, we had COVID screenings. You had to fill out paperwork that you were going to quarantine for 10 days, even though it was more of an implied gesture rather than something that the government follows up on. Um, and then I quarantined directly into my house. So that was the process. That's nice. That's nice that you're able to quarantine in your house instead of doing an intermediary at a, uh, at a hotel. Or paying out of pocket at a government facility and yeah absolutely know. and uh so what are you what are you working on now and uh then we'll we'll wrap up i'm, I'm curious because um, you're with you're with dghT uh same department as me so everybody that's the department of global hiv and tb so what projects are you working on and how are those impacted by by the COVID pandemic are you still able to actually you know implement like the regular projects that you'd be doing so i'm coming off 
have a 50% detail with the International Task Force as an epidemiologist where I was using informal data pieces to help guide strategic measures for other countries. Um, so that was a very interesting process. But now that I'm coming back to a little bit more of my regular everyday work, I am working with HIV prevention and gender-based violence. Um, I work largely with the DREAMS program here, which is a PEPFAR-funded $30 million program in South Africa. Um, partnered with USAID, um, WHO, PEPFAR. Um, but what we're seeing is a lot of these PEPFAR initi initiatives in the country where, that are targeted to adolescent young women ages 12 to 19. Um, in the school setting, when school is disrupted, how are you changing things over to a uh, virtual curriculum? And that is one of the, I think, for many children across the, the planet, um, a challenge, but especially in terms of preventing both gender-based violence and HIV, what are some of the innovations that can come out of being virtual? So, so that's some of the, the, the work that I'm doing now. That sounds so interesting. Um, Actually, interesting, interestingly enough, um, my, my mentors, I, I'd mentioned my TikTok to both of them, and they are now having me teach partners on how to use TikTok for pu public health promotion. Um, I'm going to be partnering with a local university, University of Hazelin, um, on public health pro promotion um, and trying to get, you know, TikTok to the fullest, because once again, this is a platform in which teens to 35-year-olds use and just happens to be the same age group that's transmitting this virus. So. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that's that's so important and so underutilized, I feel like, in, in every response is not just TikTok, but I mean, social media platforms in, in general. It's just like we need to get a whole lot more sophisticated with our messaging. And by sophisticated, I actually mean sort of less sophisticated. We need to we need to make information easily interpretable to average people. And TikTok does a great job of that because it's a nice 60 second spot. So you have to get to the key information. It has to be simple and it has to be intelligible. So I think that it's really amazing that you've been able to build such a following, producing you know such great information, and uh, you know just just getting the getting the word out there. And lastly, in terms of health promotion, one of the more interesting things to help TikTok is the fact that its algorithm can reach people that aren't following you. So by mentioning words or phrases or using those phrases in closed captioning, people that wouldn't usually see your videos could then see them, um, which I think in terms of populations that are being forgotten about right now is especially like a, a, a way we can go. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, so, and, and the other thing too, is that I would kind of like to make a, a call to other public health professionals too, to this is the time if now ever to be very vocal about public health promotion. Um, we have degrees in public health. We work in public health. We do not need to be gatekeepers to this knowledge right now. And the public deserves people like us to break it down and be make this information digestible for them. And then that's, to me, one of the ways that we can build trust. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, that's a key message because I feel like as scientists, you know, you're taught that you're taught that you do the research and you're told stay in your lane, right? Your lane is to, is to do the research and then forward. Especially, the especially your own lane, your own niche. Like I'm not going to be talking about chronic diseases all day. Yeah, <laughs> so. it, exactly. But that, that's the message. And then it's like, okay, let the media disseminate the information to the public and let lawmakers make relevant legislation based on the information. 
but that system is is broken down like that's an outdated paradigm where media is sometimes even maliciously misrepresenting data to suit their own ends or they just lack the technical ability to interpret what the results are and then politicians don't even get me started on politicians but we talk about media potentially maliciously misusing the information politicians absolutely do it so now more than ever it's important that we remove those barriers between scientists and the public i think that what you're doing what you're saying and what you're doing is is so important and so key because scientists can't just be like these impartial observers that stand back anymore i feel like we've got to be advocates for for people and advocates for you know correct information and um you know advocates advocates to for the public so yeah we're yeah, we're in 100 percent agreement on that I know our community is burnt out right now. We've been through it for the past 13 months, but yeah. now is the time it's, it's now, so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so any other closing messages? Any, uh, anything that you'd like to plug? Uh, let's, let's get your TikTok for sure, but TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, so, any of those things? Yeah. My, my, my TikTok is Betty Epi, B-E-T-T-E-P-I. Um, and then my my Twitter is B Science B E underscore S C underscore I E N C E, um, where if for those who need a good voice in during this this absolutely wild time, um, don't follow me, but follow the people that I follow on Twitter because a lot of them are infectious disease experts, um, infectious disease epidemiologists, virologists, immunologists, vaccinologists that are able to put their own opinionated narratives out on this platform, so. Yeah, absolutely agree. And that's what I tell people, I, I tell them, you can follow me, that's great. But if you follow the people that I follow, you will get the correct information and they're gonna say it way better than, than I ever could and more accurately. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it and um, Hopefully we'll have you on again uh, sometime in the near future. Yes, of course. It was lovely to be on, Patrick. <laughs>